You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Tia Sharp. summer of 2012, the Olympics had arrived in London. The city had undergone years of development to prepare for the throngs of visitors and athletes that would descend on the capital city for those few months, building stadiums and infrastructure. But amidst the excitement and jubilation of the people of London as Team GB accumulated medals, 12-year-old Tia Sharp went missing. On Friday the 3rd of August, Tia Sharp was last seen leaving her grandmother's house in New Addington. It was a house that she spent a lot of her childhood in, though she lived in Mitcham, about five miles away with her mother, stepfather, and two baby brothers. They were three and one at the time. She had received an invitation by text that weekend from her grandmother's boyfriend of five years, Stuart Hazel. He was a window cleaner and shared a house with Christine Becknell, Tia's maternal grandmother. New Addington was not the best area in South London. It's just on the outskirts of Croydon and suffers from high unemployment, low educational achievement, and lots and lots of teen mothers. One of the gangs from the area is reported to have taken part in the London riots the year before. Tia was allowed out in the neighbourhood and was heading to a shopping centre to buy flip-flops before returning home. She was to be home by six that evening at the latest. She had maybe £10 on her, but she didn't have her Oyster card, the travel card used in London, nor her mobile phone. When she left the house, she was wearing a yellow bandeau top, a white bra with visible crossover straps in the back, and grey leopard print leggings with black and pink runners on. She was reported as being four foot five, slim, and wearing glasses, and that it was out of character for her to go missing. CCTV was being checked, and 200 people had already been out searching for her by the time reports made it into the paper, 36 hours after she had last been seen. But by that time, her missing report had been retweeted a number of times, and local celebrities were highlighting the case, and in some cases, even helping with the searches. Police thought it was likely that Tia had been abducted minutes after leaving her grandmother's house. They were looking for a white van that had been seen in the area around the time of the disappearance, and also began searching the nearby Birchwood Park. Scotland Yard was brought in to assist with picking through CCTV from the area. As I'm sure you're aware, London and its surrounding areas are one of the most highly surveilled areas in the world. There was a plea to the public to see if Tia may have gotten any buses in the area. Maybe she had used change to pay her fare instead of her Oyster card. Leaflets with Tia's picture and description were handed out, 8,000 in total, and her stepfather, David Niles, appeared on television, distraught and seeking help in finding his little girl. Over that weekend, the police had 55 reported sightings of her, but she had yet to be found. Her uncle, David Sharp, made an appeal on the evening of Sunday the 5th, stating that the day she had disappeared, she had slept late, and Stewart said she had left to catch a bus to the shopping centre. She had no reason to run away. He spoke directly to Tia then, and told her that she was missed, and her family wanted her to come home. He said she wasn't in trouble. People began wearing t-shirts with Tia's face on them, along with the information from her missing report, and the number for the police station that was in charge of the search. Twitter and Facebook continued to spread the message about the missing girl, and by the end of the weekend, more than 7,000 people had visited a Facebook page set up to help look for her. That same evening, a candlelit vigil was held in New Addington, and more leaflets were handed out. The path that Tia would have taken to the bus stop from her grandmother's house was lit up by family members, holding candles and lights, and the bus stop itself was covered in tea lights and little notes from well-wishers. The CCTV that was scoured first came up with a sighting of Tia from the Thursday, the day before she went missing. She was wearing similar clothes and is reported as being with a family member buying groceries in a shop. 
Stuart Hazel, who Tia called Grandad, was the last person to see Tia before she went missing. He told the police that he had last seen Tia when she left the house to go buy shoes in Croydon, but had told his dad, Keith Hazel, that he had actually dropped her down to the tram station and lent her the 11 quid to buy the sandals. Her grandmother, Christine Becknell, who was a care support worker, told the press that she had been in work that day and that Tia had promised that she would be home by six. She also said that she was baffled that Tia hadn't been seen leaving the estate. It was busy and there were some workmen around, and yet no one had seen her leave. The mother of David Niles, Tia's stepfather, also spoke to the press, saying that Stuart had said he was vacuuming the house when he heard Tia shout that she was going out, and heard the door close behind her. He hadn't had time to ask where she was going or who she was going with. She told the paper that she was really confused by Tia leaving without her phone. It was really unlike her, and like most girls of her age, the phone was basically glued to her hand. Mrs. Niles had been told that the phone was left charging, but she also remembered that Tia always charged her phone at night. Tia's father, Stephen Carter, travelled from Northampton that weekend to assist in the search for his daughter. He and Tia's mother had separated before Tia was born, and he had last seen Tia two years before her disappearance. Tia was not known to have a boyfriend, she was having no trouble in school, and police reiterated that she had never gone missing before and that it was very out of character for her. By the end of the weekend, the investigation had been handed over to Scotland Yard's Homicide and Serious Crime Command, but it was still being treated as a missing child case, and the search continued, beginning to take in the gardens and schools around the neighbourhood of New Addington. On Tuesday the 7th of August, the Sun newspaper, a tabloid, was offering £25,000 as a reward for information that might lead to finding Tia. The police said that they were happy to have help, but reiterated that if anyone had information, they were asked to report it to the police. Volunteers were working out of the local rugby club in Croydon to coordinate, and searches continued. The image from the supermarket was released to try and jog people's memory, given that her clothing was so similar to the day that she disappeared. In fact, Stewart had told the police that they were the same clothes, barring the shoes, which he had washed the night before because they had gotten dirty. An uncorroborated sighting of Tia leaving the house in New Addington by a neighbour gave the hope that she might yet be found, though when David Niles's mother spoke to the press, she wasn't hopeful and said that she thought Tia had not left the neighbourhood. The police were interested in Stuart Hazel. He was known to them and had spent three years in jail on a charge of supplying crack cocaine in 2003 and again in 2010 for being in possession of a machete. Initially, he had dated Natalie, Tia's mother, before starting a relationship and moving in with her mother, Christine. He was reported as being very close to Tia and acting in place of her granddad. She enjoyed staying over at her grand's house, and he was reported as being heartbroken at her disappearance. The family engaged with the media and Twitter campaigns, as they were anxious to keep Tia in the news, given the amount of coverage that the Olympics were getting. They wanted to be sure that she stayed in people's minds until she was found. On the 8th of August, Stuart Hazel was seen being led by two plainclothes detectives from the house in New Addington to a car where he was then taken to the station. He was being interviewed as a witness. A sniffer dog was also taken into the property for a search. Stuart was later released. 800 hours of CCTV was collected from streets and trams and buses, and 80 police assigned to work the Olympics were reassigned to search for Tia. The 500 metres around Tia's grandmother's house, including a nearby wooded area, were searched. Garages, lockups, local schools and bins were all searched for any sign of the girl. At this point, though, the police insisted that this was still a missing persons case and not a murder inquiry. More than 300 calls had been received with information about the missing girl, and sightings were now up to 60. But they didn't think that the girl had left the general area, and nowhere beyond the neighbourhood and her destination, Croydon, was searched. The next day, the 9th of August... The Mirror newspaper reported that, unlike what had previously been thought, Christine Bicknell had not actually seen Tia in the 24 hours prior to Tia going missing. It had been thought that Tia and Stuart had spent the evening with her, but it was now reported that Christine had in fact been working that night 
and she hadn't returned home until the Friday afternoon after Tia had left the house. The family member that she had been seen with in the supermarket was in fact Stuart. But statements made by the family on Facebook made it clear that although Stuart had been brought to the station twice at this stage, it was routine and the family supported him as being above suspicion. The police backed this up. It was routine questioning. David Sharp, Tia's uncle, lashed out on the Facebook page, attacking trolls and telling them to leave the page if they weren't trying to help find Tia. But rumours surrounding Stuart Hazel's questioning continued on, unabated. More and more specialist forces were drafted in to help with the search and investigation, particularly from the Shannon Matthews investigation of 2008. It was another case of a young girl going missing, this time in West Yorkshire. More on that another time. To combat the rumours surrounding him, Stuart Hazel wanted to make his own public appeal for the safe return of Tia, and so, on the 9th of August, Mark William Thomas, a former detective and child protection expert, conducted an interview with him and David Niles in the house in New Addington. Both men were very emotional and wore their fine Tia t-shirts. Hazel recounted again for William Thomas Tia's last movements the day she disappeared. She was down the stairs at half ten or eleven, she played the DS while he tidied and then had some breakfast. He wasn't paying a huge amount of attention to her, just half listening as he went about the household chores. Hazel told him how he had been vacuuming when Tia left the house, and she had left her phone charging. He talked about the media coverage and how it was affecting him and the family. They were effectively stuck in the house, they said. He said he wanted people to stop pointing fingers and just find Tia. He said his criminal record, which had over 30 convictions in addition to his three in total jail stints, had nothing to do with Tia's disappearance. He said the scrutiny on him was preventing him from helping with the search for Tia, and he was frustrated. He pointed to the witness who had seen Tia near her grandmother's house that Friday, and who said that Tia had been heading in the direction of the bus stop. But despite his assertion and the witness statement, the police had combed through CCTV of the area, and there was no sign of Tia on any of the tapes. It seemed unlikely that Tia had ever gotten to the bus stop at all. The interview didn't have the desired effect for Stewart. He looked nervous and shifty when it aired on ITV News that day. Things weren't adding up. The public was against him and took to social media to express that. That night, the police visited the house yet again. Though they told the press that they were simply updating the family, they left the house with a number of evidence bags, including a duvet. Christine Bicknell was in for questioning the next day. She returned home distraught and crying and had to push her way through the press that was waiting for her outside her house. The police still would not say that they knew for sure who the last person to see Tia was. The neighbour's sighting was still unconfirmed. Then, on the evening of Friday the 10th of August, exactly a week after Tia went missing, her body was found. In her grandmother's house. The house had been searched a total of four times in the previous week. The lead investigator, Commander Neil Basu, defended the police's actions, saying that despite the searches in the house, they were also pursuing other lines of inquiry, such as the up to 60 sightings of Tia in the area, and the over 800 hours of CCTV that needed to be reviewed. He said that the searches had been appropriate. The police first searched her bedroom when she was initially reported missing. Then on the Sunday morning, a specialist team had searched the house. Dogs searched the house on Wednesday. The first thing the police needed to do now that they had found Tia was to establish how long her body had been in the position that she was found. At the time, the police would not release details of where Tia had been found. A murder inquiry was now underway, and so was a manhunt. Stuart Hazel had not been in the house when it was searched that final time. He had told Christine that he was taking part in the efforts to find Tia, but she didn't know where exactly he was. Nor did the police. The police told people not to approach him if he was sighted, but to ring 999 immediately. About an hour after Tia's body was found, Stuart was spotted buying alcohol in Morden, South London, a nearby neighbourhood. 
He went into the shop and seemed to be quite drunk. He told the shopkeeper that he was looking for Tia and pointed to a poster that was hanging up with her face on it. The shopkeeper didn't know who he was until Hazel told her that he was Tia's granddad. It was only for an 11-year-old schoolgirl who was in the shop buying sweets who recognised Stuart and told the shopkeeper that he was wanted for the murder of Tia. She had seen him on TV, and she knew the police were looking for him. When he left the shop, he started talking to people outside, telling them how he was going to look for Tia. They called the police, but Hazel was gone by the time they arrived. They began driving the area looking for the drunk man. Hazel was local to the Morden area, having grown up there, so the police began to search his childhood estate and the Cannon Hill Common. Hazel was eventually spotted by a local who saw him hiding in the woodland near the allotments in the park. He had covered himself in a blanket and hidden under a log, but a police helicopter was called in and they found him with the help of thermal imaging. Word spread quickly, mainly through social media and IM services, that Hazel had been found in the common and crowds gathered to yell at him and taunt him. He was arrested and put into the police van at 8.40 that evening. He was noxious drunk. Fifty officers had to hold back a group of young men who had gathered, baying for blood. They chased after the van as it drove away. The police were strongly criticised for not having found Tia's body more quickly and for not pulling the house apart as soon as it became clear that Tia was missing. Some said that the police were more concerned with protecting their jobs than actually doing them, and perhaps upsetting a family that was grieving was not as important as finding the missing child. The house had not been thoroughly searched until the dogs trained in recognising decomposition alerted in the house. More evidence was collected during the search that recovered Tia's body, a large black hold-all bag and ten smaller packages marked evidence were taken from the house. The house was searched by the forensics team for blood and DNA evidence, and a ladder was used to gain access to the loft area in the terrace. Alongside the outrage that was felt towards Stuart Hazel, there was also an outpouring of grief and sympathy. People began leaving candles, flowers and notes at the house in New Addington. But people had mixed emotions in the lack of information. Had the family known what had happened and let everyone participate in the charade of looking for the lost girl? Or had they been none the wiser? If she was in the house the whole time, how had no one noticed? But friends and family who'd been in the house insisted there had been no sign of her. Confusion only mounted when Christine Bicknell was arrested on suspicion of aiding and abetting Stuart, followed by a neighbour, 39-year-old Paul Meehan, for the same offence. The police thought that Paul may have given a false or misleading statement to back up Hazel's story. The police spoke out amidst the criticism and stated that mistakes had been made in the initial searches of the property due to human error and apologised for the distress caused to the family and the tight-knit community. But this didn't satisfy many people and calls were made for investigations into the actions that were taken in that week period. It was being said that the police had in fact looked in the area that Tia's body had been found, but had somehow missed it. The tabloid media had a field day, accusing the police of shoddy work and being too concerned with being politically correct or being called insensitive. It turned out that they had done a reasonably thorough search of the house, with permission from the family, but had not thoroughly searched the loft area, because as it was shared along the entire terrace, it would have required a search warrant. When the sniffer dog was brought in, it kept indicating at an area consistent with the bedroom ceiling. Officers also reported smelling decomposition in the area. After convincing a senior officer that the loft should be searched thoroughly again, the hatch was opened and Tia's body could be seen in a black suitcase. Reports said that the bag was too small to contain her entire body, so her arms and legs were visible to the police when they found it but this didn't match up with what would later be said at trial. On Monday morning, the 13th of August, Stuart Hazel was formally charged with the murder of Tia Sharp. Christine was released on bail, but was told not to return to her home due to the sheer amounts of threats that had been made against her. Paul Meehan was also released on bail pending further investigation. He too was to stay away from the estate. 
Hazel made his first court appearance at Camberwell Green Magistrates Court via video link, as the authorities feared that if he made a personal appearance, that a mob would form and threaten both his and public safety. Hazel stated to the court that he understood the charges put to him. He was not asked to enter a plea at that time, and another preliminary hearing would be held on the 19th of November. The magistrate's court did not have the authority to direct for bail and told Hazel that he could apply for that in the upper court if he wished. He was to be held in isolation from the rest of the prison population for his own safety. The next day, Wednesday the 15th, Hazel appeared at the Old Bailey, again via video link. He never did make an application for bail, and a provisional date for his trial was set for the 21st of January 2013. He was kept in isolation and under 24-hour surveillance in Belmarsh Prison, and was receiving death threats from his fellow inmates. The family were upset that Hazel had not had to appear in court and face the public outcry personally, but officials thought that it was unsafe to have him appear in person in the court, and also wanted to avoid the expense that would be involved in protecting the prisoner if he had appeared in person. The delay in finding Tia's body meant that decomposition had already begun by the time the autopsy was performed, and there were worries that this might cause difficulties in terms of finding the cause of death. Remember that this was the height of summer in London, and she had been left in a sweltering attic for a week. She had to be identified from dental records, because by that point, she was unrecognisable. There was no obvious sign of injury, leading to speculation that Tia had been smothered before being put up in the loft. Thursday, the 16th of August, saw the opening of the inquest at the coroner's court. It was a brief hearing which confirmed the identity of the body as being Tia Sharp. The court was told that the post-mortem was still ongoing, but there were very serious worries about not finding a cause of death, which would make prosecution for murder very, very difficult. After the initial post-mortem, Tia's body was released to the defence in early September for them to carry out their own investigation. By the 11th of September, it was clear to the medical investigators that there was going to be no further clarity on Tia's cause of death, and her body was released back to her family. The funeral was held on the 14th of September, and crowds of mourners dressed in black and pink lined the streets as Tia's funeral procession passed by. Neighbours and strangers and friends gathered as the little white coffin covered in pink feathers and flowers passed by, and everyone maintained a still silence. Muffled sobs were heard when the procession passed by her school, where her 800 fellow students gathered outside to pay their respects. The whole family, including Christine Bicknell, sat at the front of the church together during the funeral services. Natalie, Tia's mother, was too upset to read her eulogy, and a member of the clergy read it for her. Natalie later described the effect of the search and the death of her daughter to the Sun newspaper. She was distraught and felt empty, and the idea that they had been sitting so close to where Tia's body lay made her physically ill. The whole neighbourhood was distraught and disgusted that something so obscene could happen nearby. Soon after Tia's funeral, plans were made by the local town council to knock down Christine Bicknell's house, and neighbours adjoining the house were rehoused elsewhere. The homes on either side of Bicknell's were boarded up and empty. The houses would have to stay standing until after the trial, but plans were floated to demolish the whole terrace, buying out the private owners of the other four houses and redeveloping the site entirely. A tree and plaque were erected in the garden of the Alwyn Club in New Addington on the 10th of November 2012 in the memory of Tia. Christine Bicknell was cleared of any police connection with Tia's murder on the 7th of December 2012. On the 6th of February 2013, Paul Meehan was charged with wasting police time. He was not involved in the murder. When he appeared in court on the charge of the 28th of that month, he also denied making false reports to the police while they were searching for Tia. But he would go on to be jailed for five months for that charge. In the first week of March 2013, Stuart Hazel appeared in the Old Bailey again via video link. He pled not guilty to Tia's murder and was again remanded in custody. He would face trial in May. He appeared in person for the first time at the Old Bailey on the 8th of May at the beginning of the proceedings. 
It was the first time he had been in the same room as Tia's family since the murder. Natalie and David Niles were in the public gallery when he was brought into the dock. He was wearing glasses, a blue t-shirt and tracksuit bottoms. The jury consisted of seven men and five women and were brought into the court at 2pm to hear the opening statement for the prosecution, delivered by Andrew Edis, Queen's Counsel. He told the jury that it was their assertion that Stuart Hazel, Tia's step-grandfather, had murdered Tia quickly and violently on Thursday the 3rd of August, in the home that she stayed in so often that she had her own room. Hazel and Tia were the only two people in the house at the time, and it might be Hazel's defence that Tia had died in some sort of accident, but it was up to the jury to decide which was the truth. He warned that there would be distressing evidence that the jury would have to hear and see, and told them that despite this, they were to set their emotions aside and decide on the facts. The prosecution's case was that Hazel had paedophilic tendencies and had an attraction to Tia. They would say that there had been some sort of sexual assault that led to Tia's death that day. Hazel had secretly filmed Tia in the weeks prior to her murder, mainly of her sleeping and moisturising her legs. Along with these secret videos and photos were a number of images of other girls found on his phone of a paedophilic nature. The images found on a memory card had been hidden by Hazel and had awful material on them, being classified as the worst kind of images of child porn, grade one. His search history also told a tale. He had entered a number of search queries for pictures of young girls in sexual situations. Many of the girls looked like Tia, sporting ponytails and glasses. When Natalie, Tia's mother, heard this, she left the court. She was horribly upset and yelled out, I hope you rot in hell. When she was helped out, the prosecution showed the jury the last picture found on Hazel's memory card. They were told it was of Tia, though her face cannot be seen, and they said it was taken after her death. She was on a bed, naked, and posed in a sexual position. Tia's blood could be seen on the duvet on the bed. Later, the blood would be tested and proved to be an exact match to Tia's DNA. The picture was shown to the jury on a screen, and it was supposed to be only seen by them, but for the three times that the picture would be shown in court, many of the nearby journalists and those in the public gallery, including Tia's family, were able to see the picture clearly, though from a distance. The last message that Tia had sent on her BlackBerry messaging from her phone was at 12.42am on the 3rd of August. The phone was never used again. The photo of the girl asserted to be Tia was taken between 3am and 6am on the same night. So the jury were told this narrowed down Tia's time of death. Hazel's DNA was also found on the duvet in the form of a semen stain. The Queen's counsel then described for the jury how Hazel had wrapped up Tia's body in a sheet, placed it in a bin bag and hid it carefully in the attic. Christine Bicknell had reported Tia missing that evening when she hadn't returned by 6pm. The defendant, Edda said, had lied about Tia going shopping while he was doing housework. He described how the police had searched the house a number of times, but Tia's body was so well hidden and possibly been moved around the loft space a few times, so they didn't find it until it had started to smell. Edis asserted that they knew when and where she had died, and there was only one conclusion that could be drawn from this, that Hazel was involved. If it was some sort of horrific accident, why had Hazel not called for help? Why had he hidden Tia's body? And why had the police found another bag in the loft containing further incriminating items with Tia's blood on them, like her clothing, her glasses, and his glasses? Hazel had not been able to move the body and further evidence from the house because of the media attention and the press that was camped outside Bicknell's house. The court was then told that Hazel had told a prison officer that what had happened to Tia was not sexual, that it had been an accident, she had fallen down the stairs and broken her neck. But although the pathologist couldn't find a definitive cause of death, there was certainly no sign of trauma to her neck or skull to show she had suffered a fatal fall. The next day, the various mobile phone records were gone through and entered into evidence. The last message that Stuart received on the 2nd, before Tia had died, was from Christine Bicknell, telling him that she would be home the next day at half two. 
Tia's phone was used in Croydon that afternoon, and the last call was to her grandmother at 4.26pm. As said already, the last IM was at 12.42am on the 3rd. The phone then disconnected from location services 10 minutes after that. A statement by Christine Bicknell was read to the court. She outlined how she had no reason to be suspicious of Hazel, and that her grandkids had loved him. They had been in a relationship for five and a half years. She wasn't bothered by the fact that he had gone out with Natalie first. It had only been for a few weeks. She said Hazel was a drinker and also smoked weed daily. Christine wasn't happy about the smoking when it was around the grandkids, but she didn't think that he had a drink or drug problem. She gave evidence that Tia loved visiting her grandmother's and would spend a lot of time there, even though her relationship with her mother was also very good. She wanted to move in with Christine and Stuart when she was 16. Christine testified that she received a text from Tia on the 2nd of August, asking if she could stay over, but as she was not going to be home, she told Hazel that he could make the decision if Tia stayed or not. He agreed and met Tia in Croydon before bringing her back to the house. The two were to do chores around the house that day and the next while Christine was in work. When she arrived back at her house at a quarter past two on the third, she was hoping to surprise Tia, who wouldn't have been expecting her until nearer to half ten that night. But she found Stuart on his own. He was watching TV or playing the PlayStation and told her that he had given Tia ten quid to go buy sandals. She was annoyed at this because it left them short of money for the next week. He told her that Tia had left her phone on charge, and he had only realised this when he tried to call her, but it rang in the house. Christine said it seemed like an accident, so she wasn't concerned. She went upstairs and took a nap. When she woke at six, Tia still wasn't home. An hour and 15 minutes later, they were getting more and more concerned and rang Natalie. She hadn't heard from her either, and they began to drive around the area looking for Tia. Finally, they drove to the police station and reported Tia missing at 10pm the night of the 3rd. The day Tia's body was found, Hazel had left the house early that morning and left Christine a note saying that he'd gone for a walk, early so as to get out before the press that had been camped outside the house arrived. She didn't know what to think when he didn't return. She also didn't know what to make of Paul Meehan making a statement that he had seen Tia leave the house on the afternoon of the 3rd. The last CCTV footage of Tia was shown to the court. Natalie wept as it was played, showing Tia crossing town with her stepfather, with not a care in the world. She seemed happy. The searches of the house were described for the court, and they were also told that Christine had apologised to the police officers on the 9th of August for the smell in the house. She said she thought that one of the cats had shat in the house somewhere, and she wasn't able to find it to clean it up. A search conducted the next day turned up Tia's body in the attic. Sergeant Keith Lyons told the court that he had searched the loft on the 4th of August. He said he spent five minutes up there, but didn't move around because he would have had to crawl, and he didn't feel that it was safe to move around. The place looked clear to him, and he thought that there was no way Tia was hiding up there. Her room was also searched that day. Some of her clothing was found, particularly her school uniform. The bedding was seized as evidence, along with some makeup, a laptop, and some pyjamas. Hazel had seemed genuinely upset when the officer who searched the room had spoken to him. Another search of the loft was conducted. This time, the police officer had asked for a ladder to search it, but he was given a chair. He couldn't quite reach the hatch into the attic from the chair, so he managed to shimmy himself up and have a look inside. The loft appeared clean and clear to him. There was nothing up there except the water tank with its wooden cover. Two days later, yet another officer described seeing the bin bags in the loft for a brief minute. Again, the loft was searched on the 5th and the bags were seen, but when an officer opened them, it appeared to be just bedding and seemed far too light to be anything more than that, so he moved on. The officers who had gone up were described as devastated for having missed Tia's body up there but the testimony of the various officers served to highlight the failings in the investigation that had occurred. The next day, the loft was examined by a team of six specialists. Again, nothing was seen. 
Finally, on the 10th of August, the police officers arrived to collect a jacket from Hazel, and the foul smell was noted. A police dog was brought in again, and the bags were found in the loft containing Tia's body. The jury were shown pictures of the attic. Natalie left the public gallery as details of this loft search were given. The loft was in a terrace of houses. Each hatch in the loft was surrounded by bags and boxes. This final search of the loft had involved moving these items and searching further along the terrace. The bag that held Tia's body was found, and when it was ripped open, they saw her foot. Three days later, a further bag containing her clothing and other evidence was recovered from the attic space. On the third day of the trial, the court heard evidence from one of Hazel's fellow inmates at Broadmarsh, Paul Leahy. He said Hazel had told him that he had been framed by the police and that he wasn't the last person to see Tia alive. He was convinced that someone had access to the loft space from another of the houses in the terrace and placed Tia's body there, given that she was not initially found. Anyway, he said, he was too big to get into the loft and the police should look at some of the neighbours who he accused of being sex offenders. He also said that Tia had been being harassed on her phone by paedophiles. Then he began to tell the prison officers that it was all a huge accident. Tia had fallen down the stairs, and he brought her upstairs and put her in bed, hoping that she would get better. She didn't, and then passed away. He was frightened and didn't know what to do, so he put her in a sheet and placed her in the attic. He was insistent that it was not a sexual thing. As he said, he was not a nonce. He told one guard that he was full of remorse. The guard reported that Hazel was in fact very distressed and that he wanted to kill himself. Hazel's interview transcript from the 5th of August was also read into court. He had given the story about Tia leaving to go buy shoes and also said she was going to meet a boy in Croydon. He said he had washed her clothes the night before because there was mud or something on the top or leggings. They had done some housework and then he gave Tia the 10 quid to go and buy her flip-flops. The forensic pathologist was called next to give evidence of the state of Tia's body. The jury were warned that this evidence might be upsetting. The specialist disputed that the lofts of the terrace were all interconnected, and said that the loft that Tia had been found in was not connected to the others. When he entered the loft, he saw a black bag covered with a fitted sheet, and could tell that there was a body inside given the smell from the attic. There was no clear injury found to Tia's body during the examination. He gave evidence that the photograph of Tia on the bed, found on Hazel's memory card, was taken when the child was dead due to the irregular mottling apparent on the skin of the back of her thighs. This suggested that the girl had lain on her back for a period before being positioned as she was pictured on the bed. Given that there were no obvious injuries to Tia and taken together with the toxicology reports, He concluded that suffocation or chest compression were the most likely causes of death. There was certainly no evidence of Tia having fallen down the stairs or any other traumatic accident. The defence asked the doctor if any DNA had been found on Tia, perhaps under her fingernails, indicating that there was a struggle. He confirmed that there was not. The CCTV from the corner shop that Hazel was spotted in when he went on the run was shown, along with testimony from the witnesses who encountered him that night, drunk and overwrought about his missing granddaughter. The ensuing police search for Hazel was recounted to the jury, culminating in his arrest, blind drunk on the commons in front of an angry mob. When he got back to the station, it was found that he was over twice the legal drink driving limit and tried to tell police that he was only relieving himself in the bushes and that they had it all wrong. He hadn't murdered Tia. He made no comment to any of the questions put to him and was charged with the murder that night. More forensic evidence followed. Blood was found on a belt in Hazel's bag. It was a mixture of Tia and Hazel's DNA. Blood was found on Hazel's work jacket and a ring which he had on him when he was arrested, but no DNA could be identified from it. Hazel's fingerprints were found on the bin bags and the plastic carrier bags that had held Tia's clothes and shoes in the loft. Tia's prints were on a pair of men's glasses also found in the attic. 
bloodstains were found on Tia's mattress. Two areas of semen staining were found in Tia's bedroom, one on the bed and one on the floor. One stain had no DNA associated with it. The other matched Hazel. Next, evidence of Hazel's internet use on his mobile phone was presented. He looked for porn and barely legal stuff, but also looked for child pornography. Then the pornography from the memory card that had been found in the hall cupboard in Bicknell's house was admitted into evidence. It had some regular porn, but also contained images of child pornography and images of Tia, the ones that seemed to have been taken without her knowledge. That concluded the first week of the trial, and everyone left the court for the weekend. The next Monday, the trial was delayed. The defence team were rushing about the court. Something was going on. When finally everyone was gathered for the trial to start again, Hazel's counsel, Lord Carlyle, asked for the indictment to be put to the defendant again. Hazel looked down when the charge was read out to him. After a brief pause, he pled guilty. People gasped, there were shouts and sobs, as he admitted that he was responsible for killing his stepdaughter, Tia Sharp. The jury were instructed to find Hazel guilty to finalise the formalities, and the court was adjourned briefly before sentencing occurred at noon. Hazel said that he had changed his plea to spare the family from further hurt during the trial, but the worst of the trial was over and done with at this stage. It's far more likely that Hazel realised that the time for him to take the stand was coming closer. He had insisted that the death of Tia was an accident, and he would be expected to take the stand to tell his story. But Hazel knew he would crumble under cross-examination. Rather than the plea being a noble act of bravery, it's more likely that this was a final act of cowardice. The jury filed back in and resumed their seats. Their work in the court was done, but all 12 of them decided to stay on to hear the rest of the state's case against Hazel and witness the sentencing. The defendant, having pled guilty, would have no further opportunity to make his case, and so all of the evidence that was heard was from the prosecution only from that point on. Further evidence of disturbing online behaviour from Hazel included evidence that he had visited forums online for paedophiles, and there was another expert on DNA that the state had brought in. Victim impact statements from Natalie and Tia's biological father, Stephen Carter, were read to the court. They spoke of Tia's personality, how loved she was, and how missed she was by her half-siblings and parents. They described the anger, pain, and sadness that filled their lives since Tia's death. Then the court was told of Hazel's previous convictions, and there was a string of them, 30 in total, ranging from disorderly behaviour, burglary, racially aggravated assault, grievous bodily harm, and selling drugs. They were told about his three stints in prison. His defence team tried to emphasise that Hazel denied that he planned to carry out the sexual assault and murder of Tia that night, and although it seemed undeniable that he had a sexual interest in young girls from his internet history, he had loved Tia, and she had loved being around him. They had a good relationship, and there was no evidence whatsoever that he had been abusing her, or even grooming her, preparing her for abuse. Lord Carlyle told the court that Hazel had had an awful upbringing. His father was a career criminal, and his mother was a sex worker. He had been taken into care, where he made allegations of abuse, and soon began drinking and doing drugs. He was quickly homeless, and so began his spate of criminal activity. But his life had changed when he met Christine Bicknell, and the stability that the relationship brought him kept him on the straight and narrow, despite suffering from what had been diagnosed as borderline personality disorder, along with depression and self-harm. Once the defence had their say, the prosecution outlined the heinous nature of the crime, pointing again to the picture that had been taken of Tia after her death, and stated that Hazel should be handed down at least a 30-year sentence. Lord Carlyle then pointed out that whatever the sentence was, when it was ultimately decided, as Hazel was a marked and vulnerable prisoner, he would be in constant danger, and each day served would most certainly be a severe punishment for his crime. The judge retired to consider the sentencing, and court resumed the following day at half ten. Of course, the mandatory life sentence was handed down, and Hazel was told that he must serve a minimum of 38 years. 
Justice Nicholl told Hazel that his guilty plea came very late, and only after he had lied and tried to insist that Tia had died in an accident. What he did consider as a mitigating factor was Hazel's childhood and his psychiatric history. But the judge emphasised that this was in no way an excuse for what Hazel had done to Tia. He said that Hazel's internet search history was enough to conclude that he had a sexual interest in Tia, looking for young girls who looked like her, and that he had abused his trust most certainly, but said that there was no conclusive evidence of a sexual motive for the murder, and that therefore a whole-life tariff could not be imposed. Hazel would have to return to Belmarsh, where for the first three weeks of his sentence he was held separately from the general population given his vulnerable status. There was a real fear that he might be badly injured or killed by the other prisoners in the maximum security facility. But others, including Tia's family, spoke to the media and expressed their hope that the protection of Hazel did not stop other prisoners from attacking him. People, understandably, wanted the man hurt, or perhaps even killed, for what he had done to Tia. Natalie Sharp and David Niles, meanwhile, spoke to the media about their grief and anguish. They were not happy with the sentencing, which they thought was too little for the murder of their little girl, but also wondered if any amount of time would really feel like justice for the loss of Tia. Natalie, in particular, had come under close scrutiny of the press and public, and felt the need to insist that she had been a good mother to Tia, that her kids wanted for nothing, and that Tia was loved and missed so much by her family. There had been some talk that maybe she should have known that Hazel would hurt her child, or that she wasn't as attentive a mother as she should have been. She disputed this. Tia's family also came in for some harsh criticism when, after the sentencing, they were paid by the tabloids for their stories. Certainly, they did a lot of talking to the press. My main source for this episode was the book by Nigel Cawthorn, Tia Sharp, A Family Betrayal, and it's simply filled with quotes from the family to the newspapers during the search, in the aftermath of finding Tia's body, and indeed after the trial had concluded. Many commented in the media that it was crass for this low-income family to be making money from the tragic loss, and was seen as yet another failure to protect Tia. The day after the sentencing, Tia's family went to the ITV studios to finish filming for the documentary Living with a Killer and were reported as being excited by running into the well-known actors who were also working in the same building. To the press, they didn't seem to be mourning enough. They were also criticised in the press for being part of the so-called benefit culture, where sometimes whole families live entirely on state assistance. It is possible to do in both the UK and Ireland, But it's far rarer than the tabloids like to make out, and for what it's worth, couldn't be considered to be living any kind of extravagant life. Yet in the aftermath of the trial, it also became clear that no one close to Hazel had any clue about his sexual interest in young girls, or his particular interest in Tia. There was never any reason to suspect that he might hurt her, they said. She loved him, and despite his past, he was described as a teddy bear and that he didn't have a bad bone in his body. What had happened was unbelievable, and an incredible abuse of the trust the Sharp family had in him. Police and criminologists speculated as to what had turned Stuart Hazel from petty criminal into murderer. It seemed to be a pretty big leap from common assaults and such to sexual abuse and murder. Many pointed to the role that the internet may have played in making the leap, providing access to content that in years past would have been difficult to come across, and also providing a sense of normalization of behavior for pedophiles in online communities. Yet the internet also played a huge role in the initial search for Tia, and had the effect of amplifying the case in the media during a period of heavy coverage of the Olympics. It had gotten Tia's name and face out there, even though it would be useless given that she had never left her grandmother's house. After being kept in confinement and under suicide watch in Belmarsh, Hazel was moved to Wakefield Prison, which has a reputation for housing the worst of the worst criminals in the UK. Hazel was disowned by his family, and they do not have any contact with him. In recently leaked letters, Hazel complains of boredom in prison. He still has minimal contact with his fellow inmates and receives very few visitors. Natalie has lashed out in the media in her response to the letters and reiterated that she would kill Hazel if she got her hands on him adding that he's too much of a coward to even meet with her and explain himself to her. 
It's also alleged that Stuart Hazel attacked another inmate at Wakefield last year. He apparently stabbed Omar Benguit for continuing to deny that he murdered English-language student Young Ok Shin in 2002. She was stabbed while walking home from a night out, but Benguit has maintained his innocence. Benguit was stabbed twice in an incident in the jail in August 2017, and an investigation has been launched. Two prisoners were reported to have injuries, but Hazel has not been officially named by Her Majesty's prison services. Tia Sharp was a bubbly, feisty 12-year-old girl with her whole life ahead of her. She is remembered by her family as an outgoing personality who was brash and spoke her mind. She lit up every room she was in and made friends with crowds of strangers. She, her mother and grandmother had a special relationship and the three were very close. Their bonds went beyond family or friends to a deep understanding and love of one another. Tia was a girly girl and loved pink and yellow and getting herself dressed up. This bright and vivacious young girl was brutally murdered and stripped from the world by a man that she trusted implicitly. What's more, her whole family trusted him implicitly. He was family to them. No one could have guessed Tia's fate, her tragic end, or the betrayal and hurt that they would all suffer through. Thank you for listening to the Mens Rea podcast. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter at Mens Rea Pod. Join in on the discussion at the Mens Rea Pod discussion group, or you can send us in your questions, comments, or suggestions to mensreapod at gmail.com. I'd like to take a moment to thank our supporters on Patreon. Your support means a lot, and it helps to defray some of the production costs of the podcast. If you'd like to sponsor the podcast, head on over to www.patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. I'd also like to thank our five-star reviewers on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to Towpath Terror for your very encouraging words. To the Murder Mile podcast, another excellent podcast out there. Thanks for your comments about the Beast of Birkinshaw series. That was a fun week. Thanks very much, Mike. And thank you to Jetson Bass. I'm glad you think that we're a very listenable podcast. That's good to know. Thanks so much to everyone who leaves a review on Apple Podcasts. I love getting your feedback and it's great to hear from you. This podcast is researched, written, and produced by me, your host, Sinead. All sources used for today's episode can be found on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Our theme song is Quinn's Song, First Dance by Kevin MacLeod. With thanks to Ronan McHugh for help with sound engineering. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Thank you.